Welcome to Hair Metal Memories. We are your hosts. I am Brian. And I'm Aaron. Her name was Bullwinkle. We called her that because she had a face like a moose. But Tommy, even though he could get any girl he wanted on the Sunset Strip, would not break up with her. He loved her and wanted to marry her, he kept telling us, because she could spray her cum across the room. (laughs) (laughs) That's a uh, not-so-subtle, I guess, uh, introduction to... Good evening, uh, this is George Plimpton, <laughs> and welcome to Masterpiece Theater. Yeah. Uh, here, we, uh, Oh, I forgot to give our email address. Uh, if, if anybody wants to reach out to us, uh, our email address, again, is hairmetalmemoriesiowa at gmail.com, or you can message us on our Facebook page, uh, which a, a lot of people have been doing and uh, um, has been fodder for, for like guests and things like that. And people We love us, your messages. We yeah. really appreciate it. Yeah, people have given us really great feedback on you know what they like, what they don't like, and, and it helps us tweak the show. So uh, so very much appreciate that. And uh, Aaron's, Aaron's intro is a good reference. Reference to uh, this this time on Hair Metal Memories, our album is Motley Crue's "Too Fast for Love," and that excerpt is from The Dirt. Written, <laughs> well, we'll say it was written by Motley Crue with help from Neil Strauss. Yeah. <laughs> and Neil Strauss is kind of like uh, he's like a music ghostwriter or something, isn't he? I've, I've read several of his oh, books. I don't even think it's a ghostwriter. Dude's right on the cover yeah. of the books. I mean, he's that's true. You know, that's true. Yeah, he, he seems um, to help the rock stars re- get their books written. And honestly, <laughs> the name came up on a bunch of other stuff. I don't. Re- uh, of course, I can't pull any of it out of my head right now. Yeah. But I know within the last couple of years, I saw a couple of different books advertised that had yeah. Neil Strauss on them. Yeah, he wrote the or co-wrote the Marilyn Manson uh, book. So. Actually, I think that that's like a something wrote out of hell or something like that. Yeah, or, yeah, the yeah, long I think it's from hard wrote out of late nineties or, or something. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Pretty sure I knew a person who had that book. Yeah, I had it for a little while. I read it. I I enjoyed it. I was a big Marilyn Manson fan for a while. And then he also wrote a book, something about like the art of the game, or, or it's just called the game. And it was all about scamming on chicks, like ways to like basically making making chicks feel bad is the way to get them to be attracted to you and stuff like that. And I read part of it and I couldn't finish it. Had what a, a nice yeah, guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had a, a friend who was a woman like said that she she recommended the book. She goes, You really should read this just as an artifact. And I and it was well written, but like I was just sort of like, boy, I don't know what the target audience is for this is. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Anyway, Motley Crue, um, I kind of want to mix up the format a little bit. I know we usually um, talk about, like, the band a little bit, uh, and then we talk about our memories, but uh, I sort of, like, uh, want to start out by... Own- Someone's got some fessing yeah, to do. <laughs> i got some fessing to do. I have not been much of a Motley Crue fan, and I feel like I need to own that up front. Um, so I'm going to... But I was thinking about that. Why haven't I liked Motley Crue? Because, I mean, all of the other hair metal bands I've been into, um, and, and I realized it's because of a memory <laughs> so well okay you're gonna have to elaborate on that now aren't you yeah uh mm-hmm. when when uh, shout at the devil came out i was in high school and uh and all the people that were into that album were people in high school i really didn't care for and they were really over the top into it and uh and it was a 
big turnoff to me at the time, and I was just I sort can of understand like, that, you know. And at the time, I thought I was into like Pink Floyd and the Beatles and things like that, and I I, I hadn't quite crested into my uh, hair metal phase, which would come like a year or two later. And just so everybody can appreciate that, when when his high school buddies were were, were <laughs> hating on, or he was hating on the, the his high school buddies with Shout at the Devil, it was released September twenty sixth, nineteen eighty three. I had been three years old for three and a half months. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So there's a little Ouch. bit of a difference in <laughs> yeah, our a little bit of personal timelines. Yeah. Yeah, but that really soured me on the band. Uh, so it was a it was a it was a bad memory on my part that made me not check them out anymore. Um, and and it also like I you know there is something about. Um, there, I've never heard this record before until we decided that we were going to do really? it. Really? Yeah, I had never heard this record well, before. And, okay, and you know the other thing is like and, and at one point the band would have been the first people to tell you that like. Mm-hmm. The bigger albums in the middle of the eighties, mm-hmm. uh, after Shout the Devil, like the 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 Theater of Pain and the Girls Girls Girls, uh, that they maybe weren't trying their hardest at making a full good album. Mm-hmm. They even talked about it right here in the dirt. They come upon the realization that you know if you get like one two good really good songs on an album, you're gonna go platinum anyways. Right, and all of their albums did, so they were right. <laughs> and yeah, and I mean it's not like they're the only example of it or anything. It's just no. that he. Yeah, kind of said it. I mean, you know, so yeah, not meaning to step on anybody's toes, but it did come out of their mouths. <laughs> yeah, and there's also something about, um, and and this is you know personal for me, I guess. Like, uh, there's something about Vince Neil's voice that on all the radio hits that I heard that just really didn't do it for me. A lot of people don't care for Vince Neil's yeah. voice. Yeah, uh, and and I don't know what it is. There was just something about it. But listening to this album, um, this doesn't sound like Vince Neil. This this doesn't, and not the Vince Neil I'm used to hearing on the radio. Right, but so. I mean, you know, when this album first came out, the Leather Records version. I mean, he was like. Like 20. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So, so I ended up liking that. Was the big surprise to me is like I was, I was going into this sort of going like, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to make the most of this and everything. And instead, I ended up being blown away by this record. So, well, yeah. And it's one of those things that it, it, it's, it's actually weird to think when you go back that, yeah, they actually kind of, you know, the, the popular image we hold in our heads, they really weren't exactly that when Too Fast for Love was their output. I mm-hmm. mean, Mm-hmm. Different time. They hadn't blown up. Hadn't gone crazy yet. Uh, was still a young and hungry band. And you know, like yeah. they always like to say, that first album they'd been writing their whole. You know, yeah. Nikki Six. I think <laughs> Nikki Six wrote every song on this album. Yeah, that he had been working on that his whole life essentially. Yeah, I mean, so. there's a there's a there's a couple co-writing credits on the album. We'll get to that, yeah. but yeah, but you're right. It is mostly Nikki Six. So, and um, the crazy thing is, when they recorded the original Leather Records version, Tommy uh-huh. was 17 fucking years old. Oh wow, I didn't know he was that young. Yeah. Damn. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> and the other and the other dudes, except for except for McMars, weren't that much older. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very young. Um, yeah. But anyway, I just wanted to own that up front because like uh, my knowledge is not as good on this one as it, it has been on some of our other ones. Um, but the good news is, is I was won over by this album. Like uh, this is one that Aaron's been telling me forever that like, you know, oh, it's really good. <laughs> well, there's a number of other albums I stand by, but this one probably the top of yeah. all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so let, let's dig in. This is this is their debut album. So like uh, that that's pretty cool from 1981. There was a first edition of 900 copies of this. Yep, on Leather Records. On Leather Records. And then, and on the basis of that, they got signed to Elektra, where the album was remixed and partially re-recorded under the guidance of Roy Thomas Baker, which is just weird which because is I mean, very you know, you, you think of Roy Thomas Baker, you think like, you know, Night at the Opera, yeah. one of the most lavish and wonderfully yeah. produced records and it's like, but this album is so yeah. lean. Yeah. Like the only 
and the funny yeah. thing is, the only like production effects on the album were there before Roy Thomas Baker was part of the equation. I, w- I wondered about that. You know, because I mean, there's not much production effect on it. Just no. there's, uh, there's know, like the end of Take f- Me to the Top, there's a little da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah there's I some mean, phased stuff, like some phased Yeah, there's a little bit of phasing, stuff. but yeah. I think, yeah, it's 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 a pretty chill job for Roy Thomas mm-hmm. Baker. Yeah, and I, and I was kind of reading up a little bit about Roy Thomas Baker, who, like, I mean, he's done everybody. He's on the Stones and Bowie. Um, he did Bebop Deluxe albums, which is a band I've recently. That absolutely makes sense. Yeah. I, I just recently started listening to Bebop Deluxe yeah. albums. and I've been getting into them a yeah, lot, too. Okay. Uh, he did Zap. He worked with Zappa. He worked with The Who, and he did he did five of Queen's albums. So, like, I mean, he was he was their go-to guy. Um, but, like, uh, uh I think at some point he got hired as like sort of a like a general like business producer role where they would ask for his advice like oh you've made all of these you know mega selling albums what do you think of this really raw Motley Crue album we've discovered <laughs> It's just weird that that's where they went. I mean I yeah. get that he did a lot of in-house like Electra stuff but you know yeah. you got this this young kind of like halfway between yeah. punk and like power pop type group. Yeah. And like you know what we should get the guy who did the Queen records. Right. <laughs> It's a little like, weird. It's, it's just so strange when you when you like start breaking down some of these you know mm-hmm. arguments and like it, it's also uh, an early uh, mixing job from uh, Michael Wagner. I saw his name on that, but I didn't. I well, couldn't see, and get what he did. Is, is, it's it's kind of sometimes tough to work out who did the mixing on the original one, who did the mixing on the later one. It's mm-hmm. not always clearly. I think uh, Michael Wagner might have been one of the original mixers. Cause okay. And just so everybody knows, you'll see the picture of it in a little bit. <laughs> I'm holding in my hands. A, it's an original promotional copy of Too Fast for Love. It's not the leather records, but it's also not like the general release, so it doesn't have the, the, the printed inner sleeve that's the badass one. And this credits the mix to Gordon Fortis. And I hmm. would assume that that means since, it's, since this is the Electra Records copy, that he was the one who did the mixing for the Electra version. Okay. And that there's another mixer credited, so that would be the one before it. Okay. Because Michael Wagner's name does not show up on my copy here. If any of y'all yeah. have like one of the uh, original runs, let me know because yeah, I'm genuinely curious. Yeah. I saw his name like on the Wikipedia page for this album, and but it, it just says like he was involved with mixing, but it doesn't specifically say what he did, right. and, and he's not listed in any of the and, uh, the story of it. So Hippo Select actually reissued the mm-hmm. original Leather Records version about 14 years ago. Okay. At the time, I didn't buy it because like, oh well, if it's Hippo, shit, if that's part of Rhino, it'll just be around. And no, no. And uh, I keep getting notices on my Discogs thing that, hey, there's a copy for sale if you want to cop up $200 freaking dollars. Now, granted, that's like a fifth of what an original pressing costs, but that's that's still some change. Yeah. I felt bad about coughing up 40 bucks for a Confessor record. I mean, (laughs) damn, you know? (laughs) Um, The cover of the album is a tribute to Sticky Fingers, which I had seen this cover before and I never put that together. Really? Yeah. That was my first thought upon seeing it. It seems really obvious now, but... That was 10 when I got that album. (laughs) Yeah, like I said, I'm a complete noob to this record, so... I know, but that just makes it even funner because uh, I didn't uh, even know that they're... Yeah. I I just assumed you knew this record. No, no. Because we never actually talked about it beyond doing this show exactly as such, you know? It was uh, basically up until today, I had never heard it before. So I, I, I've listened to it like three times today to get ready for the for the show. But like, uh, you know, it was like, whoa, what's this? What's see, this? for me, like, yeah, I got Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood for Christmas mm-hmm. in 1989. It'd come out mm-hmm. in like August of that year, maybe. Uh, and I freaked out on it. My my cousin, yeah. who was a big Motley Crue and, and Bon Jovi and all these other 
fans of that whole run. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, she basically talked to my aunt. And she's like, Aaron wants Dr. Feelgood for Christmas. And I mean, she was right. Mm-hmm. And I freaked out on it. And the next year, I had a little bit of birthday money. I was like, I wonder if there's more Motley Crue albums, you know, because I was young. I didn't know yeah. that much about it. I wandered into to music land. I saw that cover. I'm like, well, whatever this is, I want it. I didn't know if it was the <laughs> album right before it or if it would wear, but yeah, I freaked out it's on it. That would have been June of 1990 when I got that album. So Okay. <laughs> I know it very well. I've been through yeah. two or three cassette copies, two or three CD copies, and, well, one LP. So I, wow. I listen to okay. it like a lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, there's a box set that has this this album on it. That's uh, what I was reading. Music to Crash Your Car To is yeah. called, and it has the original mix. It has the original it. leather mix, okay. which they do admit is sourced from an LP because the master tapes are long gone. They yeah. said they have no idea where they are. It but, probably uh, recorded over them at the time. You it's know? entirely possible. Yeah. But there was bonus tracks on that CD, and it's really funny because one of them is a song called Tonight. Yeah. The and I'm sitting there listening sound. to it. Well, and see, I didn't even, I didn't catch that right. Okay. I'm listening to the song going, this sounds like the fucking Raspberries. Yeah. <laughs> like, you were right. This sounds like Eric Carmen could be singing this song. And I looked at the songwriting credits, I'm like, oh my God, yeah, because it's an Eric Carmen song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and as we said just a little bit ago, Nikki Six wrote most of the tunes on this. Um, and I didn't realize how much of a songwriter he is. Like, if just, you go through the uh, discography, the bulk of it is his. Yeah. I mean, you know, being being new to new to Motley Crue, it still when feels you get weird, to but like, like um, he, the third record, it kind of becomes a partnership of him and him and uh McMars are like okay. kind of the okay. songwriting team. Yeah, and he Nikki Six contributed to uh, Alex Cooper's Hey Stupid album, Lita Ford's Lita album, One Shot uh, of yeah. Poison, and the the Steve Jones Fire and Gasoline record. Have you heard that record, the Steve Jones one? No, it's, I, it's I, really I, good. Really? Yeah. yeah, I haven't heard any um, any Steve Jones that wasn't didn't involve Johnny Rotten and yeah. Glenn Matlock. Yeah, I got a tape of the Steve Jones album when it came out. It was a promo tape kind of a thing. And oh. and, and and it had like a pretty good lineup of people on it. Um but it sounded really good. There's lots of like really cool sounding good it sounds good. It's a good sounding album. Uh, and and he also worked with uh, Meatloaf on a couple of Meatloaf records, which I thought was kind of. And like, I don't even hold it against him. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. So Nikki Six is like way more of a force in music than I ever gave him credit for. I had no idea about any of that. Um he started out working in a liquor store and selling vacuum cleaners, and then he formed this band called Sister with Blackie Lawless, which is insanely yep. cool. Uh, I, you know, so to me, this is all new chunks of rock and roll history because well, I. Well, both I, you know, of them, I, I'm assuming that it's one of the points you have on there. Both yeah. of them ended up in the band London. Yeah, which that was, was the next thing. Yeah, the band that got famous for people jumping ship and getting really famous. Yeah, I say, that, that would have been a super group, it sounds like. I mean, London, had, well, they were, and like all those cool cats weren't always necessarily in the band at the same time. There was yeah. kind of some s- succession going on. But I mean, like this band, because, you know, London started in the 70s before yeah. everybody started jumping ship, and they didn't end up putting out an album until 1985 and it sank without a trace. Yeah. Which just sucks for them. I mean, they weren't mm. bad songwriters, just timing and coincidence, you know? Yeah, things didn't click at the right time mm-hmm. for them. Yeah, and London had Nigel Benjamin from Mott the Hoople. And then uh, after he left, I got Blackie Lawless in because of the Nikki Six connection, I'm assuming. Uh, Izzy Stradlin from Guns N' Roses. And my and, boy Fred Curry. And Fred Curry from Cinderella. Which So that would have been like a, a hair metal super group, you know? Right. Um, uh, then, uh, But Nikki Six left that before it got very far, if it ever got anywhere. Like everybody else <laughs> did. And uh, then he formed Sorry, Motley London. Crue in 1981 with Tommy Lee. Um, and then they added Mick Mars, that, who they met through a newspaper ad, and uh, Vince Neil because Tommy Lee had gone to high school with with Vince Neil. Um, 
And Motley Crue has sold over a hundred million albums, which I which I was seven impressed consecutive by. platinum yeah. records. Yeah, so they're they're kind of the. I mean, you you can hate them all you want. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, you can't argue with success. <laughs> they did sell a lot of records. Even Generation Swine went gold, and that was in '97. Yeah. Wow. I mean, '97 wasn't like any sort of peak year for anybody no. who sounded like Motley Crue. I mean, let's be honest, right? No, all of the hair metal and just regular metal bands were really going by the wayside right about so that the, period. The 90s were kind of a weird mm-hmm. time for some of the, you know, yeah. louder endeavors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I kind of, my overall take is uh, you know, um, that they're, that Motley Crue's history is pretty well documented from like the from the book The Dirt, and they just did the Netflix series and all that stuff. So I, I wasn't gonna go too far into their history nah, here, you know, uh, and, and just like jump into like the album proper. Unless you have anything you want to say about their history. Uh, not really. I mean, yeah, chances are if you're listening to this show and you're not like maybe one or two people, you probably already know enough about it that we would just be retreading. So, yeah, I'm the only noob to Motley Crue. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that, uh. that that's interested. So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we can just go into our breakdown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went with the 1982 Electra version of the album. Just as did I. Okay, okay. I know sometimes we ended up on different versions of it because you, you, you're. Well, I'll be honest. This is full person. disclosure. I didn't go back and do a re-listen for this. I know this album like the back of my hand. Okay. I've been through this so many times, huh. just front and back. It's. Yeah. Okay. Well, my my newbie ears take on the album in general is that it's very raw sounding compared to what I think of Molly Crew, uh, which which surprised me. Uh, it's. The whole thing's melodic, though. It's I mean, all of the songs are very melodic, and it's very much rock and roll. Like this, I mean, and that it's, guitar is just real. I mean, that's that's the crunchiest right. probably guitar they ever had. Yeah, and it, and it's not really technical. Like it's like you know, you no. think of like you know all the you know scales and stuff like that that like metal guys were playing at the time, and it, and this really isn't about that. And it's not because, like because you know this metal. is kind of like a, like if like the New York Dolls or Sweet or something kind yeah. of like came out in the eighties, you know, it'd yeah. be closer to that. Exactly. Although, I mean. It's not. I mean, Tommy Lee's a pretty badass drummer. I mean, yeah. But like in that chill way, where it's like you know, I'm not busting out all my all my skills yeah. every second. You know, I mean. Yeah, there's not a lot just, of showing off on this. It's he's all, just a real slick, and he just yeah. has such an awesome pocket as a drummer. You know, and yeah, they seem like they're determined to rock out together, and 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 it's all in the service of the song, and there's, mm-hmm. and it's not very flashy, which uh, really surprised me. Um, and all the songs seem to be about like having fun and rocking out or going crazy a bit here and there, <laughs> which I thought was kind of, I mean, they keep it fun. Uh, some of the choruses seem really repetitive, but I think that's okay for driving music like this. Sure, yeah. This is like, you know, and they sound so young. I mean, and a lot of the songs are about youth too. So like, I mean, and, and that's, I didn't know that Tommy Lee was 17 when I was like listening to it and like, <laughs> I came up with that, but that would explain why it sounds so young. I guess. Quite. <laughs> Uh, we start out with the song Livewire. Um, this, this has some nice, nasty sounding guitars, um, which, uh, that's not something the Molly Crew songs I've heard sound really super slick. Because and, literally every record after this was produced by like Tom Worman or Bob, Tom, Bob Rock. Okay. That so, explains I mean, a lot. Yeah. 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 These are like rock and roll guitars though, which is like, you know, and usually sparse. That's like, there's not a lot in them. Um, the song has a great in- – I mean, this is a great intro song to an album, I thought. Um, and this song gallops like crazy. It's a great riff. Um, and that, that big phased-out bridge section is really cool. And I assume that that's where Roy Thomas Baker earned a little bit I of his money. I think that might have been. Now I'm thinking about it, I think your original leather doesn't have have the have that. The phased-out guitars? I don't think so. 
but now it's just been long enough that I don't yeah. recall real well. But yeah, that I remember mm. putting this tape in that being the first song and just going, Oh, well, okay, yeah, if I wasn't a fan of this band before, I'm I'm solid now. This mm-hmm. is this just rocks. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to name a better album opener, it just comes right out of the gate screaming. Right. They're like, Hello, mm. we're Motley Crew. <laughs> and the little donut donut you know, I mean that's yeah. just come on, that's <laughs> wonderful. And then we go. We next come up with "Come On and Dance," um, and this one took me by surprise because of the odd reference to Sandra D. Right? <laughs> yeah, I was like, it's I did not expect a... that. <laughs> it's also the shortest song on the record, but uh, yeah, it, it once again, boy, it's so close to just like straight power pop music. Yeah, yeah, which which was really odd. It's like you have this raw sounding music, and then they're like he's singing about Sandra D. And, and like, the guitar and is just so mean. That the intro <laughs> guitar just sounds so mean, but it ends up being just just kind of a bouncy <laughs> tune. I mean, it's great, but yeah, it's 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 a little more surprising, you know. And there's some interesting lead guitar work on this one, and it's again pretty raw, and it's almost like muffled, like lead guitar work compared to like modern production. Like, yeah, it's it's not like you know, like lead guitar above the mix the way that like you know most very much in the mix. Yeah, it's very in the mix. It's it's closer to like a Stones sort of like you know like Exile on Main Street sort of mix kind of a thing or something like that. and there's also this weird, loud, dead-sounding cowbell. And the song itself is just super fun, though. Um, I, there's probably some questionable lyrics he in it. He does that cowbell <laughs> trick again, the exact same yeah. cowbell move. He does it in the song Keep Your Eye on the Money, which is yeah. the next-to-last song on the first side of Theater of Pain. Okay. And and he does it in the next one too on Public Enemy number 1. There's a cowbell in that one too. Yep, so, but, it's, so, but it's, it's not quite little... the same little phrasy trick. No. It's no. still a cowbell ringing loud yeah. and clear through this chorus, but Yeah, basically if there's cowbell in it, I'm kind of a sucker for that. Cowbell really does make sense. Cowbell good. songs have an amazingly <laughs> high batting average. They really do. For for quality. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Public Enemy number 1 has that's I thought that song has a lot of swing to it. I like that song. Uh, uh, co-written by his former London bandmate, Lizzie Gray. Okay, okay. Who's Lizzie Gray? Lizzie Gray I was one of the main driving forces of London. Okay, okay. Um, he, I didn't know if that was somebody that had gone no, on to do bigger things or something. So. No. Oh, okay, no. okay. Yeah, and and I thought this was like an early tune with some of the glam rock influence to it that that, that pays off for them later on. When you can tell, because yeah, it was written when he was still in London, and it sounds yeah. like it's a, like just a shade earlier than some of the other songs, you know. Yeah, and there's there's lots of little hooks throughout the song, and there's a there's a pretty good guitar solo in here too. Um, you know, just yeah, very hooky. And actually, know? I think this is one of the songs that was uh, uh, redone for the Electra version because I think the mm-hmm. Leather Records version. Uh, the first verse after coming back from the solo is 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 different. Mm-hmm. Not extremely different, but there's different lyrics okay. in it. Okay. Yeah, I enjoyed this song a lot. I thought Public Enemy Number One was just like super fun, and um, just because it had the most swing out of any of the songs on the album. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the next one, number four, is Merry Go Round. I like this song a lot. Yeah, <laughs> this is a pretty cool song. It's funny because it's like ballad pace, but yeah. it's not really a ballad or anything. It's not, it just yeah. starts out yeah. the, chill, what we'll call chill in comparison. Yeah, the guitar sound for that riff is really odd. It's not like a normal guitar tone that like you know you would have for this, especially for this kind of music. It's kind of it's pretty lo-fi. Um, it made me wonder if like you know maybe they were just making the most out of the gear they had back then or I something. I would really like that. love to have a conversation with McMars and be like, "What were you playing on?" In yeah, that, it's, man? it's it's so it's weird. Like, 
I can't I can't come up with another guitar sound like that anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it was nece- yeah, and I don't th- necessarily think it was a feat of engineering. I think it was a feat of well, this is what we have. Right. <laughs> Which is fine. I ain't knocking on that at all. But, yeah, it mm. works for the song. Uh, and I read that the inspiration for this song was an incident that Nikki Six witnessed in Seattle, where a guy with a mental disorder refused to get off a merry-go-round until authorities came and pulled him off of it. Which I thought was an interesting topic for a song, uh, and the, the lyrics the lyrics tend to be somewhat odd in the fact that they portray the perspective of the man with the disorder and what exactly is causing him to be attached to a merry-go-round. Count the times that he laid awake yeah. at night thinking. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, and I also another thing I really love about this song is that you can hear the guitar that's been playing that riff. Um, all of a sudden, it kind of turns up a little bit right before that ripping lead section. Um, I love shit like that. That lets you know that they played it live. That was, mm-hmm. a, you know, that wasn't, this wasn't an overdub lead. This was nope. like they played the whole song from beginning to action. That was a take that was action. captured. Um, and, there's a, and there's a nice little turnaround at the end of the song, which is not very metal, but is very cool. And, and I think that it speaks to that glam rock, you know, sort of portion of things where let's just throw in kind of a little jazzy turnaround to end the song so we don't have to, you know... Well, honestly, for this, the, I was just talking to somebody else about this. Uh, you know, like the this, the early Motley Crue shit. It's kind of like if you could pretty much draw a straight line from like the New York mm-hmm. Dolls and T Rex and Sweet to this band, and have it just yeah. be like one logical yeah. pre- progression that just makes sense the whole way. I understand that now, but if you would have told me that yesterday, I would not have believed you as much. <laughs> I mean, well, like, we've already talked but about the first Faster Pussycat album. That's true. Isn't there passages yeah. in there where you're like, dude, yeah. this is some New York Dolls action that right here. That is definitely, I mean, yeah, so, you know. For sure. It's, yeah, I think yeah. a lot of these bands just follow just a yeah. logical path. It isn't quite yeah. the... I had not put Motley Crue in that category, though. So, again, I'm learning a lot. <laughs> and uh, So, cut me some slack out hey. there, guys. <laughs> uh the next song is take me to the top um part of what i like about this one uh is that there's not rhythm guitar behind the solo um so nope it's just bass again it has that live feeling where all of a sudden the rhythm guitar drops out because he's playing lead on that guitar now um and and i just again i love that stuff that lets you know that that this is really a rock and roll this was another one of the songs on the album that i always really liked personally a lot (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I just because like it totally changes feel from the like the, yeah. the the intro and the chorus to the verses. Yeah, it completely changes up the little count in and everything, and it just like yeah, they just do leap to a different section. You know, the way that like a band like Yes or somebody would do. Seriously, I mean, yeah, because yeah. the intro is like that that hard drive and rock, yeah. and then just like pause to do bow 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 and changes dynamic. It's like it's fucking cool. It is really cool. And the chorus outro section has some of that like rock danger feel to it that I really like, where it's like, uh, you know, you know, the whole song's like "Take Me to the Top," and it's all kind of like vaguely suggesting like you know climaxes or like you know or or getting high on drugs or something like that. But then in the end, it's like "Take Me to the Top" and throw me off, you know, and I'm just sort of like, oh wait, that's sort of like getting into like you know the the death aspect of like rock and roll, which is like sort of you know they would pursue that much later <laughs> later on. Well, yes, you're not wrong. And it's kind of funny that because I'm pretty sure it sounds it sounds like the backing vocals at first when, when mm-hmm. you get into that that last chorus and you get the backing mm-hmm. to the top to the top, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I thought it sounded like Tommy doing those, but like the last one really sounds like Vince. Hmm. Okay. But I don't know. Maybe one of y'all out there who knows these things can call in and say, "Hey, jerk ass, you got it wrong." <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's okay if you even say it like that too, man. I'm not. I'm not. Not above that. Yep. Yep. When we don't know, that makes us jerk asses. I agree. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, the next song is "Piece of Your Action." This is probably the most overtly sexual song on the record. <laughs> it's entirely possible. One of the few Vince Neil writing credits on the album. Yeah. And well, to be more specific, it's one of two. That uh, that slide riff is a really cool hook. Um, and I know that, uh, and it sounded familiar because I've heard McMars slide stuff on like some of the radio hits that Motley Crue had. Uh, yeah. I, I really liked it in this song. Um, and there's a really cool breakdown solo section in this that like... Uh, um, that I really liked, and there's like, and and it's like noisy guitar stuff instead of like the technical prowess. You kind of get the feeling that like, maybe like in their early sets, this was like one of like the big centerpieces of their right. set. Yeah, just based on how that solo is built up. Because I mean, yeah, it, it's not just you know you take your twelve bar solo or whatever, but there's like a bunch of arrangement around it and stuff. You know, yeah. And uh, Vince's wail at the end of this song is pretty sweet, which which is means yeah. again as somebody who was not a fan of Vince's voice until I listened to this record. Um, to me, that was kind kind of a high spot where I really did appreciate what he's doing with his voice there is like, you know, he, he really like lets loose. Um, then we've got starry eyes. Um, I have no idea what this song is about. <laughs> I'm not super sure, but I kind of it, it, yeah. it, it, like, I kind of get the same feel from it that I do like from like, come on and dance. Like it's a song from a seventies glam band that made it into the eighties, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, it seems like they're maybe going for a style or something. I have like I have as no close idea. to a love song as they would have got on the album, maybe or something like that. I don't yeah, know. yeah. I, I didn't quite get what they were getting at lyrically with it, but it's really melodic. Uh, and it really has like the, the, yeah. the, that 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 uh, uh, chorus. Yeah, it has like a power pop feel to it. It the, does. Sorry, as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and that, that's it. That's the lyric. <laughs> that's the whole chorus right there. <laughs> I like a simple chorus. Yeah. Like, if you told me your, the chorus yeah. of your song was Yeah Baby eight times, I'm I'm in. I think that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. I would do that, too. It, I, I would be mad I didn't think of it first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I like that this song sounds different than the other tunes on the record. Uh, it is know, noticeably like, different. Yeah, like, structurally, even, it's, like, different, which makes me like it, because I'm sort of like, they. The most of the time, it's like they're kind of trying to create the Motley Crue formula a little bit, but, like, they're also willing to play with it some, and this was one of those where I think they were playing with the formula a little bit. Um and then we go to uh, Too Fast for Love, the title track. Which is freaking rules. It's a yeah. great riff. Yeah, that is a great riff. And those chunky guitars. I really, really like the sound of the guitars on this and I song. Like, I like the drum work because it's not yeah. like, especially, you know, the during the during the riff, yeah. he's kind of doing that do, 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 instead, of, instead of your typical like four on the floor backbeat thing. Like, he, I don't know. Like, yeah. He's got little inventive things for... For how yeah. he plays it, I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like the gang vocal effect that they yes. have on there. It's like it makes it sound like you know they're they're you know they're a serious rock band with a big gang behind them. And, and it's like, like the know. only time that you really get on this record that you get like the gang vocal. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't overuse it. You know? No. Um, as this the, song as, originally had a whole lot like a like a minute minute and change intro to it too. Okay. Uh, that all got chopped off. If you have the music Crasher Car to Volume One, you can hear it. There's a longer oh. version of this song. I heard that on the there's. I listened to the Spotify version at the end. There's like bonus tracks, and one of them has uh, the original intro to it, and it's pretty interesting actually. Yeah, it's kind of so. weird that they chopped that off because it was just yeah a 
cool. And it's not like the album was too long or anything. Right, I mean, no kidding. Even, it's even a the short 10 record. track version didn't cross 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come no. on. Yeah, all these songs are fairly short anyway. So they must have just really decided, nope, we got to stick to that short factor and we're not going to have intros. <laughs> And I, and I like that little octave baseline walk up moment. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and then they have a little phase drum moment right after that. That's probably Roy Thomas Baker again. Yeah, he's got the best job. He's like, I put some phase on that. Okay, I'm gonna. Where's my check? <laughs> what should we do with this song? Why well, I, I would put phase on it also. Um, and too fast for love is also the only fade out song on the record. It is. And that's the other thing. Um, the original version that had the alternate intro, it actually mm-hmm. ended. It had a hard ending. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why they took off the hard ending either. But yeah. yeah, what was everybody's thing with fade outs? Don't know. It was a staple. <laughs> I mean, it probably okay, made it whatever. It's your choice. But... I wonder if it made it easier for radio play because then the DJ could come on oh, and say, right. like, You've been that listening. was too fast for love. <laughs> on the morning zoo. <laughs> 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 We need to get some of those for the show. Yes, I think we do. <laughs> uh, and then on with the show. Um, this and, one's like at least mildly biographical. The Frankie yeah. died just the other night referring to his birth name. That's what I read. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. Nikki Six's birth name was Frank Farana Jr. Um, and this was supposed to be Carlton. him. Carlton. Oh. Frank Carlton. No, yeah, he's got, he's got a long name. <laughs> Frank Carlton yeah. Serafino Farana Jr. Yeah, it's Nikki Six renouncing his given birth name and killing his old self. Some say it was suicide, but we know how the story goes. Yeah. yeah. After his father failed to recognize his existence and be there for him. Um, I feel like you can really hear the Mott the Hoople influence on this one, too. Yes. This sounds a lot like a Mott the Hoople song, especially in the choruses and stuff. And I feel like the, he mentioned Susie in this song. And Susie is sort of like... Um, that's the hair metal girl. I mean, hair metal girls should just always be named Susie, I think. Because there's, sure. like, there's like the Tesla song, Little Susie, and like, you know. Oh, we Do you suppose the Susie in this song was on the up? It's probably the same Susie. I you mean, know how what many probably can there be? Is. Susie, if you're out yeah. there, could you please call us yeah. and verify that you are the same Susie yeah. in these two songs and possibly others? Yeah. And I also just want to throw out there we need to hit a Tesla album sometime in the near future. Yes, too. we do. Yeah. Now, personally, I'd, I would rather do the great radio controversy just yeah. because, but. Whichever one you want to do, I'm happy with it. Yeah, I'll do all the Tesla. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like Tesla a lot. Uh, and this is where, on my notes, we finish the Electra album. But I did make notes on on a couple of the ones after the, the other tracks. Um, uh, Toast of the Town. Um, B-side of their first single. That's the B-side stick of the first single. Guns. Yeah, and, and I like that song. I, it steals a little bit from Fox on the Run, which is more glam rock stuff. Um, yeah. But, like, but that's okay. And, you know... Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> and there's also another. It's it's a, got a pretty ripping solo on it, and uh, and I also like that it had hand claps at the end. I'm also a sucker for hand claps. Like you know, like ever since the Cars, basically, if you put hand claps in a song, yeah. I'm kind of in. And they're just fun to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we already mentioned uh, tonight the Eric Carmen cover. I thought it was a strange choice, but they do a good job for it, and it fits Vince's voice really well. Oh, big time. And then uh, Stick to Your Guns, um, which is like the song that you mentioned earlier. That What's was right on, for you? Yeah. Right yeah, that was on the original uh, release, and they pulled it off of, for the Electra release. I thought it was weird that they pulled it off. And it's, it's a good tune. It is. It's, like, it's, it's, and it's, I thought it was better than some of the other tunes, actually. Um, my only my guess is that maybe, and I, I'm, I haven't read this anywhere. I'm totally just guessing. But I wonder if they held it back so that they could have a single in their pockets or something like that. You have later. to wonder because there yeah. was still a little bit of that practice going on 
then. I mean, yeah, I couldn't think of any other reason. Other, and so when, when there's not a good reason for something, I think, what were the business people doing? That's almost <laughs> what you have to think, right? I mean, because they usually made like, what's the best bottom line margin? You know, rah, 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 numbers, numbers. Rah, rah. Yeah. <laughs> but no, mm. so yeah, it's a. An awesome record. I mean, it's probably my favorite of anyone we've talked about on here. Okay, there's a okay. good chance of. Um, yeah. At least it's the one I'm most familiar with, just sort of inside and out, save for maybe Appetite for Destruction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's take a short break, and then we're gonna come back with a very special guest today. I'm pretty excited uh, about this. Uh, yeah, this is gonna be, you know, this will be really cool and tie into actually more of like uh, what hair metal memories is about than we normally do. Even so, uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Today, our very special guest is uh, Harvey Warren. Say hi, Harvey. Hey, guys. How are you doing? And tell us where you're calling from. Uh, I am actually up in Canada in Calgary, Alberta. So if you watch hockey, we are the Calgary Flames up here. Awesome. Yes, indeed. The very first time that I ever left the United States was to go visit Calgary. So I've actually really? been, I've, I've, I've been in your city, but it was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do remember okay. a giant like saddle shaped dome or something. Yeah, that's that's the hockey arena. Okay, yeah. okay, I thought so. Yeah, we yeah, yeah we visited there and uh, went to the hockey arena and uh, and we went to Banff like nearby and stuff. It's a beautiful course, city. That's, that's where everybody goes. Everybody heads out to the mountains. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're very similar to to Denver. We're we're like the Canadian Denver. People compare that <laughs> to cities as well. So. Cool. But that's the today we're talking to Harvey because uh, Harvey reached out to us uh, on our Facebook page, um, mostly to, to tell us that he 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 he, th- he thought our show was good and that we should like uh, you know work on our audio a little bit, which which we're which we're doing, <laughs> which and we appreciated that feedback. But uh, we we got to chatting with him um, and. Uh, and you have the claim to fame of uh, you filled in for Tommy Lee on drums. Sure did. Uh, it was very rock star movie moment where I had <laughs> about two hours notice, and then next thing you know, I was playing in Motley Crue. Wow, that's pretty badass, man! <laughs> super badass. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so we're super interested in, in in hearing this story. Tell us a little bit about. I mean, there has to be some reason why you ended up in this position. Well, if you're familiar with Steel Panther at all, oh, in yeah. Calgary, yes, we I had a 80s band that played every Tuesday night and it was uh it was the go-to for all the industry because Tuesday night we had a lot of home hockey games and like we were right on the strip where everybody hangs out all the bars. So of course that's where they came at the end of the night. So we did that for about 10 years. And we did the whole costumes and the whole 80s thing. And when Motley Crue were on tour and they were coming through, it was actually in the next city that's about an hour and a half away. They um, came up with the conclusion that Tommy couldn't play because he had tendonitis. Mm-hmm. And they asked a local promoter, because there's always local people working on the shows, mm-hmm. and they asked him, do you know anybody that would maybe be able to pull this off? And they're like, yeah, we got this guy in Calgary 
plays in the 80s band. And, you know, a lot of the press that I got afterwards was that it was a Motley Crue tribute band that I'm in, but it wasn't. It was just an 80s band. <laughs> okay. And uh, well, I was actually at work at the time, it? and yeah. I, I got the call, and I, I thought it was a friend of mine who's a local radio DJ. He's like, are you, gonna go to, are you coming to the concert tonight? And I was like, no. Like, <laughs> not even, like, he's like, well, uh. What have you got to play? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah, I don't know, who's pulling my chain here? So then he's like, I'm going to get somebody else to call you that knows you. Mm-hmm. So then about, about 10 minutes later, I get another call, but it's not somebody I know. It's like, his name was Bob and he was the man- tour manager for Motley Crue. And he's like, how well do you know the material? I'm like, yeah, inside no. And he goes like. How long will it take you to get here? <laughs> I, was, I was about an hour and a half away. And, and so I, he said, don't tell anybody what's going on. He said, just bring whatever you think you need. So I threw some gear in the van and I actually stopped at Walmart and I bought the Motley Crue DVD that had just come out, which was from that tour. And oh, it, was the, wow. it was the big circus one. Yeah. So I threw it on, on my laptop and I drove an hour to the, the next little city and I got there and they're like, okay, well let's come up and sound check. And Tommy wasn't there. So I sound checked super quick. And at the time, there's a backstory to this, but Vince comes out and he's like, Oh, I know this guy. And we sound checked like three sections of different songs. And then that was it. Wow. And the reason why is because when Vince does his solo tours all the time, he hits Canada a lot because there's a lot of markets up here in the casino circuit for a guy like Vince. And my other band at the time was called One Nine Hundred, and we were an original project. We opened up for the Vince tour across Canada. Oh, that's so cool! Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So so then when Vince recognized me, he's like, "I know this guy," and then <laughs> and then everybody was comfortable. And then it was like, there was like not even a question. And then like, I'm like still crapping my pants. Like, I don't know what's going to go on. And they're like, do you know all the songs? And I'm like, where's the set list? And there was a song from the album. Um, I don't even remember. That album that they did right after John Karabi. The, yeah, Generation Swine. Yeah. At, yeah. Generation Swine. They did a, they had a song on that. And I was like, I Glitter. have no idea what the song is. So we glitter. Yeah, I saw saw him on that tour. I remember that set list. It was wonderful. Yeah, so we just skipped. We just skipped that song. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's not bad. Just cut one song. (laughs) So you got to like you got to like play Red Hot with them, didn't you? Oh yeah. Uh, (laughs) that is so cool. That's one of my favorite Molly Crew songs. Yeah. And it's funny because I grew up like a Tommy Lee fan, so my setup is very Tommy Lee. Okay. And the drum tech is like, do you need me to adjust anything? I'm like, no, that's good. Uh, <laughs> that's well, so perfect. I bet you were like their dream choice, actually. I mean, it was like, I mean, it's, it's probably a dream for you too, of course. But like, it was probably, you know, they were like, whoa, this guy's just like clicking right in. You know, the sound guy and the drum tech and everybody are like, yeah, this guy, yeah, it, this is like Tommy Lee. <laughs> yeah, you can't have this fall yeah, together and, much and, better than and this. And like, they, for some reason, they didn't even like... It was like they didn't even ask me about endings. They didn't talk about <laughs> intros or nothing. I we just did it and like wow. But but a lot of it was the, the fact that uh, like I snuck in that video, like I watched that DVD on the way there. So okay, I knew all the endings and I knew how they started everything and I made little notes on my little uh, cheat sheet. So if you go on YouTube and you look up 
uh, my name with some, some Motley Crue beside it. You can see some of the videos of me playing, and then you can see me looking either at my cheat sheet or Tommy Lee was sitting beside me behind uh, Marshall Stacks with a with a headset on, and he was just yelling at me the whole time. <laughs> I hope he was yelling approval, right? <laughs> oh yeah, he was having a he was having a blast. Oh good. Uh, so. Was it helpful yeah. to have him yelling at you, or was it unnerving? <laughs> A little bit, a little bit of both. <laughs> okay. like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I could see that. <laughs> no, it was good. So that's, I mean, that's my story. But then that big thing was afterwards, um, the story broke out so much that people were wanting to ask me about it. Mm-hmm. And they, Montlacura actually hired me my own press agent. And the lady would call me the night before and say, yeah, Rolling Stone magazine's calling you tomorrow at nine or Oh, wow. um, I was actually, I was booked on David Letterman, but then that's the year that his mom got real sick. So they just canceled the whole week of shows. Oh, so I never right. got to go to Letterman, but, oh. but Rolling Stone did a full page article on me in print in print and did like a whole story in there. So I got my, I didn't get the cover of the Rolling Stone, but I got in Rolling Stone. That's pretty impressive. Not bad, yeah. man. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> so was it fun? It was, it was so fun. Yeah. I have to imagine it'd be fun. I mean, it's it's a stressful situation because I have to imagine you're playing for more people than what you normally played for. I mean, because it's a Motley Crue audience. Yeah. 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 No, it was. It's an, it's an arena. It 10, <laughs> arena, 10,000 people. And then I just recently got home from uh, before COVID. Um, my other band that I was playing in, we just did uh, Stone Temple Pilots and the Caesar Tour across Canada. So we did arenas all across Canada oh, for that tour. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Dang. So yeah. did you get to like hang out go. with them after the show and stuff and like, you know, whatever, do whatever the 2005 version of them partying got to do or? Well, you know what? They don't. And, and the thing is, it was the first time in 10 years that the entire band got together for a little powwow before the show. And they told me that because they wanted to, everybody wanted to connect with me and we got, got in a little group and hung out a little bit, but Nikki had told me that that was the first time in about 10 years that they actually get together before they go on. Cause usually they just, you know, everybody's got their own dressing room and it's just, it's their job. So they just go up to their point, you know, their personal sure. assistant takes them to their spot and they start the show. Well, it's super cool that they made that, that they did that for you. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. That's, they yeah. had no reason to have yeah. to do and, that. And they yeah. were like, no, nah, man. And, and of course everybody's in. asking like, Oh, is there a big party afterwards? I'm like, it's it's completely opposite. Like at the time, I think Nikki had his kids with him, and and people just go their separate ways, a hundred percent. They just go, and their personal assistant takes them to the next city, and then they get ready and they go on. I I, I had heard Nikki say something about that to that effect. Like for the last I don't know decade and change, thirteen, fourteen years of their touring, they were pretty much just on their own thing, and it was like, yeah, we check in for work together every day. But I mean, you know. When yeah. work's over, we're yeah. our own people. Yeah, know? everybody travels separately, and they, I mean, some people have kids with them, and I know Vince had his wife and his dogs with them, and, you know, and <laughs> to this day, Vince checks in. If Vince is in Canada, first person he calls is, or he actually, he has Dana Strum calling, because Dana's his manager. So yeah. Dana calls. Dana Strum's like, his manager? Yeah, Dana's his bass player you know, in his solo band. That makes and sense, because I think... Manager. Yeah, okay, no, it all comes together now, because if I think about it, wasn't Dana Strum instrumental in, like, putting together his solo band or helping him put together that solo band when he first Yeah, left? Dana is his solo band. Oh, man. So his solo band is Slaughter, 
and they just exchange either Vince or Mark Slaughter. Really? Hmm. Wow. Yeah, same oh, guys. Man. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, I'm thinking, I, you know, this is also, like, way outdated information, but I'm thinking back to, like, you know, Robbie Crane being in the band and stuff like that, but I guess that's kind of been a number of years now. Yeah. Yeah. After, But Vince, yeah, Vince has been, I mean, uh, sorry, Dana's been his manager for years. So oh, Dana that's too awesome. Never forgets. Yeah, and everybody checks in if they're coming to town. And uh, a friend of mine actually had moved to Vegas from Calgary who was working for the hockey team here and went to open uh, with the Vegas Golden Knights and worked for them and then became friends with Vince. And and he was a singer in my, uh, one of the band I was in here. So now they're best friends because they're living in Vegas. Oh, and so now everybody <laughs> checks in online. Boy, it just falls into place in this story, man. I'm loving this. <laughs> yeah. Oh. But now Vince is packed up and he's moved out to Nashville, so. Okay. I do remember reading about that. I remember that he's out there now. Yeah. Most of the guys have moved out to Nashville, like L.A., the whole L.A. scene. Like, there's, if you go out there, there's nothing going on. There's no places to play. There's nothing for music. Either everybody's in Vegas or they're in Nashville. Which blows my mind, because I think about there being no place to play here. And it's like, right, yeah. and you're not the only person I've ever heard say that. I mean, I'm also a loyal listener to uh, both of uh, Ricky Rackman's po- podcast, and he talked about how there's just nothing going on there. And the people he interviews who were part of the strip yeah. scene, they all say the same thing. There's just nothing going on there now. It boggles my yeah, mind. No, the came up. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, there was so much going on there forever. So, Yeah. No, it was the birthplace and something going on. Yeah. It's good. So, so what are you up to these days? I mean, who are you playing with uh, now? Well, right now I just built a recording studio in my house, and um, nice. actually, I have a I have a son who is a recording engineer, so he he runs the whole studio and everything, and I just kind of cook food and have my I have two puppies and <laughs> I just go for walks. <laughs> so, are, are you semi-retired yeah. then? It sounds like. Well, I would. I mean. COVID has changed everything because oh, this city is very similar to Nashville where all the pubs and bars always had live music. So you could play cover mm-hmm. tunes or keep busy, lots of acoustic guys playing. But right now yeah. with the laws with COVID, there's nothing. You can't play, you can't do anything. Oh yeah. Uh, me and my co-host just last week got to play a, a live stream concert. And it was funny because I think there was, it was at our local city auditorium. I think there was maybe seven people in attendance, but it even felt weird just getting up on stage and playing. And even when there wasn't anybody around and it was all going out on the on the internet, it was like, it's almost been a year to the day since the last time I got on stage. This is a strange mm-hmm. feeling. It was a weird feeling. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's definitely killed the scene for sure. And who knows what will happen after because, I mean, it's going to take forever for yeah. yeah, the buildup is going to be way harder than I think what most well, people Well, because even if you're a, a pub owner, the last thing when your pub has been shut down is you're going to pay for is a few hundred dollars for somebody to play music there. Yeah, Correct. And you've been any money as it is. So. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a show I have tickets for that was originally supposed to be in March of last year. It was postponed to November of last year. It was currently postponed to March 16th of this year. And I was just looking at the first av that's uh, up in Minneapolis, <laughs> looking at the at the at the calendar of upcoming shows. It's not even listed on there, so I'm just going to go ahead and assume that that's not happening. <laughs> no. Not that I would probably you know, go after anywhere. after the Motley Crue show. What that got me was a, a, a lot of recognition around here. So we did have, like I said, the big casino scene where you know Rat would fly in and play. We had Twisted Sister come in. Oh, cool. And, 
and people got to know that like, cause I would do a lot of backline work for them too. And they would, so they would make sure like, I remember Bobby Blotzer was telling the local promoter, like, yeah, can we get that Harvey guy to make sure everything's good? And then Blotzer calls me nice. the night before. He's like, I need two foamies on top of my ride. And I need, what is this? and then, and then at sound check Blotzer and, and, uh, uh, what's his name? Singer guy wouldn't Stephen Piercy. <laughs> Stephen, yeah, they wouldn't sound check together because they hated each other so much. So I sang, <laughs> laid down, nice. sound check, and then I played drums for round and round for another sound check because <laughs> those guys wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually just reading about Rat like literally today, and they do have a history of not getting along and somebody leaving and then them shutting uh. down because of you know, disagreements and whatnot. But um, yeah, well now they're going to do a show. A live stream from the whiskey. I just and read they, that. <laughs> and Steven invited Boxer Black to play. I even huh. heard rumors that he's been talking to uh, Warren D. Martini again, too. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, Warren D. Martini's family owns the Mars Candy Company? No. Wow. <laughs> wasn't yes, and that's wasn't why, that the end for round and round? Warren, no, Warren, that's why Warren doesn't need to work. Warren has the inheritance of the Mars Candy Company. Yeah, so he doesn't put up with anybody's shit. He doesn't want to. <laughs> no, no. And and when he when Rat was successful, he had the mansion and nobody else did because oh. he already had the money. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a little tidbit information. That's pretty interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I did not know that at all. Yeah. I knew about their connection to Milton Berle and everything, but I didn't. I didn't. That was my only little <laughs> cool piece I had. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, I've I've got a hundred million of those little tidbits for you one day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. If you've got any more dirt, we're all ears. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. Uh, another good story is: uh, Are you familiar with the Nam convention that they have? In yeah. Yep. Uh huh. Okay, so I met Nam, and this was just after the Montlaku thing. So I, I mean, I've got a pass to everything, and everything's cool. And it's me and Whitey is the guitar player for Iggy Pop, but he's actually from Calgary as well. So it's me and him and Eric Singer, and we're gonna go to the Monster Energy Drink oh, party. Oh yes! And and Eric doesn't have a pass, and the guy doesn't know who he is. So I have to convince the guy at the door, like, this is the drummer for Kiss. Oh, who the hell? Who the hell at Nam doesn't know who Eric Singer is? What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I've got to convince the guy to to get him in. And the guest the guest musician at at this party is Tracy Gunn. Oh wow! There's some local band playing. Yeah, there's some local band playing, and and of course, after you know, I have I've had a couple of drinks. I'll just go wherever I want. So I just walk backstage, and uh, and I run into Tracy, and he's like, "What what are you guys gonna play?" So he's like, "Oh, we're gonna do Never Enough," but the singer doesn't think he can sing it. I'm like, "I'll sing it, <laughs> dude." So, <laughs> so I just got up with Tracy at Nam, and I did Never Enough, but some convention and. Just made made it up as I went along. Wow! Oh, that's fantastic. So, so, so you're not just a drummer. It sounds like it sounds like you're. I mean, you you at least sing. What what else do you play? Yeah, yeah, I can sing. Um, in the in the '80s band that we did, I I sing all the the Journey and the Guns and Roses and all the high. Wow, the hard stuff. Yeah. While yeah. drumming. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Dude, My yeah. utmost respect we're, to yeah, you, man. That's we're, we're, impressive. We're cheersing to you right here, right now. That <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, respect. <Dang. laughs> and then I know you wanted to maybe, I, I sent you that photo of uh, me and Nuno. I want to hear all about oh, Nuno. Yeah, I mean, okay, you so, hit a sweet spot yeah, here. Okay. 
so I'm always really on the on the you know social media and looking at who's playing with who and all that kind of stuff. So uh-huh. it's Tuesday night and we're doing our eighty show, but Rihanna's in town. <laughs> yeah, oh. Rihanna's Rihanna's playing at the Saddle Dome there, like the big yeah. arena, and and you know this is primarily like you know white person city and we're playing our show at this little club and all of a sudden there's these six large black guys at our show and I'm like we don't usually have black guys at our show and there's one little white guy with them mm-hmm. and it's Nuno mm-hmm. and, I, and I was like why the, why the shit is Nuno here and I'm like oh yeah Rihanna's in town because he's Rihanna's guitar player that's right yeah so I'm like in the middle of it, we finish the song and I call him on and we're ladies and gentlemen, noodle bit courts in the house. And he says, his face just drops. And he's like, how did you, well, after he came backstage and he's like, how did you know it was me? And I'm like, well, I knew Rihanna was in town and we don't have, you know, all these black guys coming to our show. Cause we're, it's like white city where all these rock guys just come out yeah. and he's like, oh, <laughs> unbelievable. So he stayed with us for like, hung out with us for a couple hours after the show. And then two nights later, so he's in this grungy club with me in Calgary. Two nights later, he's on the Grammys with Paul McCartney and Rihanna. Oh, wow. I know. I'm watching the Grammys, wow. and there he is on TV. What wow. a mind so, fuck, wow. man. Yeah, new it gets is. around. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I've had some good run-ins. A Twisted Sister was a, was a real good show, too. They're very, like, everybody there has an ego the size of... Texas and and they have to have even the mic stands had to be exactly five feet apart and oh, everybody geez. had to have the exact same everything and it was really crazy. Okay but, then, wow! <laughs> I would not yeah. have guessed that for Twisted yeah. Sister. No. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dee Snider doesn't talk to anybody. He doesn't want to talk to anybody. Oh wow, oh, that's a little disappointing. That I mean, I get it because it's like you know he wants to be in top form and all that, but darn it, you know. Yeah. You hear all these stories you know, about how like Dio was supposedly like, like like this incredibly nice guy who had time yeah. for everybody, and then so when you hear those stories about they didn't want to talk to anybody, it's like that's eh, a bummer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, who knows what the situation is at that time too? But that's travel. true. That's fair. Yeah. Anyway, I just want to say the podcast has been awesome, and I stumbled across it because I was listening to Dawkin, and then something popped up, a suggestion popped up to, about some Dawkin podcast, and it was. <laughs> Oh, oh man. guys. Yeah. So that was, very I was driving episode, in the car. Yeah. 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 I was driving in the car and then, and then there. So I've been listening to it ever since. So I just, wow. just want to say that's, well, I really appreciate it, man. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. This is fantastic. Good. Yeah. It's good. And I also think we should touch on the fact of, about hair metal. Now I think that, okay. Okay. I know you guys are going to maybe talk about Motley Crue and hair metal. And if you think back to when, Bands in the eighties just first started coming up. There was no, you know, stigma of hair metal. It's no, 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 it was just rock and roll bands, right? Right. And then I think, I think hair metal came in later when the guys wanted to label the bands that only looked the part. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I agree. I agree. You know, and then because I mean, on if you listen to Hair Nation on satellite radio, they play Queensrÿche, which is one of my yes, favorite. They do. You know, bands. That's one right? of my favorite bands. But they too. were trying to be hair metal. Those guys could outplay yeah. almost every guy in every band. Oh, yeah. absolutely, and and yeah. that's just one of the weird things about the '80s because there was things that got marketed yeah. as. I mean, granted, it wasn't being marketed as 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 hair metal, hair rock, whatever. But like you know, Queensrÿche and things like uh, Badlands were sold as the same, sort of like same thing as like Motley Crue, Poison, yeah. and stuff like that. And it's mm-hmm. like, but but they're I not. I just think really, it was '80s rock. It was, it just was. '80s rock. And yeah. Right? Honestly, and then. And then 
Some guys were more, and if you think about today, it's about lyrical content. If you think about any of the Poison records or anything, or like anything old 80s, you don't hear any of the new rock bands singing about, hey baby, I love you. It's about, now it's about mental health and like, yeah, you know, like. Right. It's just the changing of the fashions, you know? You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. But no, and that's that's one of the things that that Brian and I actually, when we were setting down to do this, that was our thing. Is yeah, we were going to call it something hair rock, but more it was just sort of a you know just just a attention grab, mm-hmm. pull you in because you know, and and because one of the things I was mentioning to him is that pretty much every genre of music, when it comes along, it gets hated on for a while, you know, mm-hmm. and then people will go back and maybe actually critically assess it and go, okay, you know what, there was good stuff there, and we just at the time we weren't appreciating it, and it seems like everything yeah. gets that except for like what we're just yeah. gratuitously calling hair rock. Yeah, yeah. Well, There's- the '80s rock lyrics are now rap. Right. Right. It's weird that it's such. That's a good point. <laughs> and it, it, it boggles my mind that we haven't got past the stigma of '80s rock, yeah. where so many yeah, other you things. You talk about money, money, fame, you know, girls yeah. drinking. That's all in yeah. rap. That's not in rock anymore. Yeah, no, that's true. They're the new rock stars. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. we just kind of want to be like, no, man. There's albums yeah. in here that you should listen we're, to that are worth your time. You know, you should take this in. We're on a mission to save hair metal mm-hmm. and and turn it yeah. from because because it, it, it's a derogatory term, and we're trying to turn it into yeah. something. It's like call it what you want, but it, there's some good music that was made back then. And oh, uh, for sure. And you know, and 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 I guarantee you, almost every episode we've done, we we get some message or more from somebody that says like, that's not hair metal. Because because they're upset yeah. that we, we've taken an album that they love and called it hair metal, and it's not that we necessarily <laughs> you know disagree with them. It's just right, you know. But we're trying to cover like. Oh, well, you guys music. always say you're you're totally right on on how like let's say even you know the winger or the white snake nineteen eighty seven album or mm-hmm. a lot of it was just you had the the companies wanted to market it to fit in. Right. It's exactly. Like any, mm-hmm. It's like any product, right? Yep. They don't. I mean, their job is to market it and sell it. So yeah. if you're selling burgers, you're going right. to sell it to the people that eat burgers, and you're going to call it hair burgers if that's right. what it is. <laughs> exactly, if hair burgers are selling. Thank you. That's yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you know, and it, so the bands don't care either. They they take their you know million dollar advance check and <laughs> they want a gold record. So yeah. As far as I can tell, I think that like, you know, and, and sort of our take on it has been it's more about a time period than it is about anything yeah. else. Because, you know, it is. Yeah. You know, it, the, the genres with that are like covered within hair metal are they're all over the place because Queensryche is not the same as Winger, which is not the same as Poison, which is not the same as Motley no. Crue and on and on. Those are no. all very distinct yeah, there's, sounds. There's a lot more variance than a lot of people are willing to admit. It's, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like if you don't speak the language, everything sounds the same. But if you actually have some familiarity well, with the language, you're like, like, okay, well, you, you can kind of pick it out and see the evolution and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the thing is, like, start an 80s hair, hair or just say start an 80s cover band. And then you pick the hits. You're playing Bon Jovi. You're playing Poison. You're playing, yeah. like, you don't even maybe play the winger because winger didn't come across, like, on like, what's right. still being played on the radio today that's from the 80s. Van Halen, Jump. Right. You know yep. what I mean? Yeah, and because if you go play and the kids are coming to the bar and they're 21, yeah. they don't know the B side from Faster Pussycat. No, yeah. and if you bust out head of they a break, they're not going to know. No, at, no. At some point, no, they I, don't I wanna, jump. They know. I want to cover Van Halen. I want to cover Van Halen at some point, and people are going to lose yeah. their mind. We're going to get so much hate mail. <laughs> Now I want to cover it on principle. Yeah, because Van Halen sort of invented hair metal, but like nobody's willing to call them a hair metal band. 
Yes. Um, so no, they were an 80s band. Right, That's yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. You get yeah. It, an 80s band. Yeah. And the 80s, people that had success in the 80s, uh, I mean, social, and we had no social media at the time, but the no. social, like MTV and everything, just wanted to somehow call it something or group it in something. Yep. Yeah. You know? And that's the that's the bummer because at the same time, you know, I'm I'm a single digit age Midwestern kid in the mid '80s. If it wasn't for MTV, <laughs> I wouldn't have known about any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because no, in 1987, I was 17, so it was perfect for me. Yeah. 1987 was when no, I got my first cassette tape. It was it was Def Leppard's Hysteria. I was seven years old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I was 18. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm I'm in between. I'm slightly older than you, Warren, but like way older than Aaron. <laughs> way. <laughs> so you're. I like Aaron's comments all the time because he he didn't live through it. He's just discovering it. So I always right. laugh when I hear. Yeah. Him oh yeah, because like, like and a lot yeah. of these bands that we've talked about, I knew like a song or maybe two songs because when I was a kid I could see yeah. the videos and you know when you're yeah. a single digit age kid you don't have like the money to go buy albums yeah. so this yeah. is also part of my like I want to go back and hear all this stuff that I remember thinking was really cool and yeah. so much well, of those- no, and that's what I like with having Spotify it's like I just you guys maybe will spark something and I'll remember and like <laughs> um, I don't know I was reading an article on, on Marilyn Manson and I forgot about Tim Tim and then he was in that um, <laughs> what? what was his 80s band yeah uh, and and I doubt like you can just go find anything you want and listen to it right like, yeah it's perfect there's so many rabbit holes yeah. <laughs> oh I'm going yeah. to go down a good musical rabbit hole every now and then it, yeah. it happens but I mean the late 90s also had some good or I mean the early 90s sorry mm-hmm. like I the XYZ album or the Lynch Mob record yeah and that's when production got mm-hmm. real good yeah you yeah, know, wasn't the, like ninety one when we got uh, uh what was that Wicked Sensation by uh, Lynch Mob? Yeah, yeah, and then Firehouse came out, but it all kind of missed it. That's when Allison Chains also came out, so it was mm-hmm. like. Well, and that's the thing is, know. it wasn't anybody's fault. It was just sort of how time yeah. worked, you know. It, yeah, time changed. A lot of the eighties band, like like let's say the Great White and stuff. Yeah, I know you guys were talking about the blues side of it. Well, I think a lot of the guys decided they would like maybe dress down and have a blues influence because it gave them more credibility. Right. Oh, no, I can totally see even that angle, too, yeah. yeah. There was a lot of that going on. I yeah, think. even though they were called hair metal, like, I know yeah. Great White had the real blues side to them, and, you know, they really do s- even... Yeah, Great White kind of sounded like, you know, like if, if a 70s rock band was, like, displaced and just moved into the 80s, you kind of right. get... That's, that's the impression yeah. I always got. Yeah. Yeah. So, so no, what is but, uh, you know, and every guitar player had to prove that they were a good guitar player, and then right. every album had <laughs> the drummer play a double kick pattern at yeah. least on one song to show that the drummer was good, and then yeah. there were so many rules about each record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's what was too bad is because those rules didn't come in until like most of the real groundbreaking stuff were when they yeah. didn't know what that there were any rules, you know. Yeah, and that's record uh, company yeah. bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm like you. I read all the inner sleeves and all the credit notes and everything. Mm-hmm. And I know you guys mentioned uh, a fellow Canadian, Garth Richardson, mm-hmm. on yep. an episode with the White Lion record. Love well, Garth, Garth Richardson. Garth Richardson was my son's instructor at the school. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah he, he manned the boards for one of my very favorite albums of all time, which is Stoner Witch by the Melvins. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, just oh, yeah. No, Garth so and I are good, good friends, really good friends. Oh, so. That's so yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, you're making our he's day my, right now. My son's instructor. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh man. So, so when you're playing these days, what what are some of like your favorite songs to play within the genre? 
Mm, you know, it's funny because like, I'm sure some of them are like you know obligation kinds of songs where you're like, oh, we got to do this because the people expect it. But like you know, what what do you like to play that you think is like? Well, super the last fun? group I was filling in for did a lot of. Uh, they were a bit more of a B side of an '80s rock, so we did a bunch of stuff off "Speak of the Devil." Mm-hmm. Oh, nice! <laughs> yeah, and we did like a, a lot of that other stuff. But the thing for me is, I get I don't know, it's getting old, so I don't want to rehearse all the time. So I can just like I just try to learn everything overnight, and then just show up and just play it all the next day. So I just, okay. <laughs> just want to impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Dang! Like, oh, how much you guys want to rehearse twice a week? How about once? Yeah, <laughs> how about one rehearsal? <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. No, I've done that with friends too. I was like, well, how about we just hurt, rehearse the one time a week and we just get it right? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. That. <laughs> yeah. It's a hell and of a time. I, I don't know if you guys are getting back to this on the Motley Crue stand, but if you talk about. Too Fast for Love. Let's talk about Too Fast for Love going to show the devil. If you yeah, listen to okay. Too Fast for Love, it's a lot of almost cheap trick style songs and T-Rex, because oh, yeah. that was Nikki's influence. Yeah. And then when I you also, get to show the devil, uh-huh. you get into like Knock em Dead Kid. And, and the lyrics, none of it is about girls and like... No, Knock em know, Dead Kid, he got beat up by the LAPD. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot different than other things. And then when they get to more of theater pain and Dr. Feel Good, then you start getting the, you know, oh, we made a whole bunch of money. Let's, let's get the girls involved here. And, <laughs> and a bit more love songs. And yeah, it was their third like album that, before so. they had a, a ballad, we'll call it. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, the first, I mean, too fast for love has like on with the show. That's slower comparatively yeah. paced, but it's not a ballad. I mean, Mary Ground's not a ballad. You no, know? Mm-hmm. they're just slower moving songs. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and if you've never met Mick Mars, I'll tell you that guy is a saint, and he's the nicest guy in the world. So everything, hmm. everybody I've ever like read anything about that has met him, they all say that that he's just a hmm. super nice guy, like far and away the quietest. Yeah, one and, the and he's had the same guitar tech forever. And the guy took me on a forty-five minute personal tour of his whole rig, and he's like, oh, "Okay, wow. this is how this goes." And and they they set it up sideways, and it's got like like six cabinets and everything and everything's mic because then everything just goes out front. But it's, it's an amazing experience. If you can ever meet Nick and his, and his guitar. I would tech. love to. I know yeah. you guys are good, the guitar guys. Yeah. Well, cause you know, and that's the cool thing about Mick is, I mean, his guitar tone has evolved over the years and the albums, but, but at a mile away, you can still tell oh, that's Mick Mars playing the guitar right now. You know, yeah. I mean, he has yeah. his sound and it's wonderful. Yeah. No, it's good. All right. Anything else, boys? Well, I'm sure we could talk for hours, but let, yeah, we, we, we should probably let you go. But thank you so much okay. for taking the time to talk with yeah, us. I will stay in touch. Okay, oh, we would appreciate Please it. Please do. Please do. Okay. All right. Thanks Goodbye. a lot, Harvey. That was a super fun interview. That Wow. That was amazing. Yeah. I, yeah. I was already excited going in and I'm even more excited now. Yeah, that was super. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. And uh, join us next time on Hair Metal Memories. Thanks, everybody. Hair Metal Memories.